Welcome back to Everything is Public Health, our new series on the important figures of public health that more people should know about. I think we need a new tagline for this. Do you have any ideas? That's real. It's real long. I know. That's why I say I think we need a new tagline. Maybe like... Or a new name. Public health figure seems too generic. Yeah. We need a subline like public health figures colon. The forgotten woman of public health. No, not forgotten. I, I wouldn't argue that these people are, are necessarily forgotten. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily call them unsung heroes either because like a lot of them are pretty baller. Yeah. It's just that if you're in the public health space, you might know them. But if you're not in the public health space, you won't know them. So I guess... This is the workshop. Like we'll, well have yeah. another one of these <laughs> later this month. Um, for now, it's called Public Health Figures, and we're going to talk about. Hey, and if folks have recommendation, yeah, if folks have recommendation on a name, send us an email. So the motivation for this series is that one, we think public health is awesome, and I think generally people don't know enough about public health and the work that public health do, and so I think it's cool to mention these people, but also inspired by other podcasts and books where they talk about women in science or they talk about people of color in science where they historically have been not getting the amount of credit that they should have. I'm not saying that people that we're going to talk about don't get the credit that they do, but that's sort of the spirit of things. We're going to highlight people that uh, historically have been underrepresented. So just I'm going to take us on a real quick tangent. I know we're like (laughs) 90 seconds in, but I was at a conference this past week on injury and violence prevention. How appropriate for today's episode. Yeah. Yes. It's like tangent, but it's still related. But for the last two conferences, last year and this year, we've had a student closing plenary speaker. So a student talking about mentorship, the future of the field, sort of what they want to see for, for students moving forward. And the speaker did an amazing job. Fantastic. Her name is Leslie Barnard from University of Colorado. She's a DRPH student. She she just nailed it. Nice. It was amazing. But she started off with this really funny kind of comparison or anecdote, whatever. She was talking about how before the pandemic, when she told people that she was an epidemiologist, people assumed she studied bugs or skin. Yeah, of like course. Like she was a, a bug doctor or a skin doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and then after the pandemic, people thought that all she did was infectious disease. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and she talked about, oh, you know, I take those same tools and I, I apply them to studying injury and violence. And it was just such a, like a, so well captures everything we talk about, how people <laughs> just sort of don't necessarily understand the breadth and depth of the public health topics that we talk about. Yeah. And this is why we make the show. Everything is public health to show that, you know, everything is indeed public health. And we want to highlight the people of the field that we think deserves way more widespread attention. So that's why we're doing these series. So Cass, how would you say whether someone has quote unquote made it? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough one. I think it's a tough one. Yeah. Specifically in the context of public health, I think someone has made it. Or just in general. Well, yeah. sure. In general, like, you know, you become sort of a household name or you have a following or, you know, whatever. You've got a gajillion people tweeting, retweeting you. But I think in the context of public health, we can see some of those same things like Anthony Fauci, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody knows. Anthony Fauci, love him, love him or not. Now they do. (laughs) And that's great. But there are sort of field specific ways to make it. And so there are some folks who, if you are a student of a field, if you're a practitioner in a particular field, the likelihood that you trained from someone who trained from someone right, who was at the top, like that's that's another thing. Like if right. you can sort of show, <laughs> wow, this person, all the people who are leaders in the field now, 
Like they were all trained by this person. And like, that's, that's one thing. Nobody can see this. I'm making like a family tree with my hands that people can't see. Or but. a pyramid <laughs> yeah. or whatever, however you want to shape it. I think that's, that's a really good measure. Like are the people of today's, the leaders of today, are they all related to one person one way or another? And I think that's a really good measure. And you will see that for Susan Baker, our figure of today, that is kind of true. Um, to me, one of the ways that you know you've made it is that you have your own Wikipedia page. She has her own Wikipedia page. And for this episode, like I said before, we're going to talk about Susan Baker, or uh, I think most people know her as Sue Baker. I unfortunately never had the honors to meet her, but I believe you did. Yeah, I trained from Sue. I And now you're an uh, industry leader of today. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons I went to Hopkins was because I had the opportunity to have Sue as a co-advisor and to learn from her. And so many people who study injury prevention, even violence prevention, really learned from her application of those principles of epidemiology to understanding and preventing injury. And she is a lovely, lovely, lovely woman who is so thoughtful and asks really challenging questions, but she's supportive of students. And it was a real honor and a privilege to not just be at the institution where she, you know, sort of made her name as a researcher, but actually to get to learn from her and have her be a mentor and advisor. That was life-changing. So I I sort of count myself in the the family family tree tree of of Sue Baker. Yeah, Yeah. and as we're about to see later in the episode, all her accomplishments and her impact on the field, and you'll soon realize like how influential she was. So like any biographical articles or pieces. We have to go through the basics, right? She was born in 1930. She got her Bachelor's of Arts at Cornell University in zoology. So in 1951, which to me is already like, that's such a public health thing to do, to like start out somewhere and just be like, no, I love public health. And you make a career pivot, which I made a career pivot. And I think you kind of did, albeit a little differently. But I think that's such a public health thing to pivot into public health rather than start out as a public health person, which also good, but less frequent in my experience. And later, she acquired her master's of public health at Hopkins in 1968. And I think this is inspirational already because I feel like under today's climate of like the Forbes 30 under 30, which is become recently problematic because people keep getting arrested for fraud if you uh, appear on my list but the whole idea like you have to be young you have to like you know if you don't start when you're 20 your life is over like that sort of mentality is very much prevalent today and i feel like this is very inspirational because like it's never too late you know to like do stuff that you feel like is important and if you calculate she got her master's in 1968 which means she was 38 when she got her master's. Sometimes it's hard to math. Sometimes it's hard to math. And that already, I think, is inspirational. And I think people should be more open to be like, you know what? It's not too late. I can make an impact. I could change. I could be a you know force of good in this world. And no matter how old I am, you know? And I think that's a great lesson for folks, re- regardless of what your background is, what yeah. you're doing now. And not everybody gets to do what they love. Sure. I had always had this mindset like, oh, you got you do what you love. You never work a day in your life. Some people have that benefit. Some people really have that luxury. Yeah. They find it early or maybe even find it later in life. Some folks do what they need to do so that they can do what they love otherwise. Which is also fine. Yeah, which, you know, like there's no one way to do it. But if you find later in your life that you do have an opportunity to pivot, like 38 is not old. That's not late <laughs> in life. I'm just sort of generally saying, like if you're not you know, in the 30 under 30 doing what you love already, 
and you you find what you want to do and you want to pivot, like people shouldn't be afraid to to shake things up and try something new, particularly if it's in public health. Yes, you should always do public health. Um, <laughs> that's just our humble opinion. But yeah, I definitely felt that pressure when I was. I guess I'm still in my 20s, but like a few years ago, they're just like, oh, like you're not, you're not in med school, you're not, you know, you're not doing like cool, crazy things. But hey, like sometimes it takes time, and sometimes it's all about finding what you're passionate about and doing things at your own pace. So already inspirational, and I've always referred to her as Dr. Baker, but she does not or did not have a doctorate until an honorary doctorate of science degree from the University of North Carolina in 1998. So I don't know how honorary doctors. Work, but I believe they just give it to you as an honorary doctor. Usually, it is in recognition for substantial contributions to the field over time, which she has. Yeah, yes. And so, thinking about someone who maybe was not in a in a position to have had the opportunity to obtain a doctorate for you know gender issues, race, ethnicity issues, right? So, thinking about who may have had the opportunity to get into programs, and recognizing the fact. That there are still people doing amazing work in programs in in institutions across the U.S. and recognizing that contribution with an honorary doctorate. We we have given out some at Hopkins also. So would it be appropriate to call her Doctor Baker? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. I just wanted to get that out of the way, but I feel like this is another inspirational. So this is another inspirational thing because she held multiple positions at multiple important institutions prior to her honorary doctorate degree, and I think this is just another thing that's like you don't need to have a doctorate. I understand things are different back then, but she, with just a master's of public health, did tremendous contribution to the field. I don't know if that's possible now. Well, yes, yeah, an MPH is a terminal degree and yes. we have people doing phenomenal work but i think this is a testament to some people needing to be exceptional to be able to earn any kind of doctorate an honorary doctorate included as opposed to a lot of perhaps <laughs> mediocre people yes. who had other opportunities who were able to just get a doctorate right and so on one hand well deserved yes. she did amazing contributions for many years after that as well has continued to make amazing contributions but she had to be outstanding exceptional and make these huge contributions to to be considered for this that, yeah that's a huge can of worms about like especially during that period who gets and doesn't get to be recognized is there is a definitely a different gradient for a woman versus men. Well, just I know that this is about Sue, but I also just want to recognize her husband, Dr. Tim Baker, was also exceptional. And so like the two of them together are like <laughs> the Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, like they were like the power couple. Actually, according to her Wikipedia page, she only got her master's in public health at their encouragement, uh, her husband to be like, yeah, you should totally do it, which another inspirational thing, I guess, like support is very important. Like she got a lot of support during her career. And in turns, as a mentor, she was very supportive of people who followed in her footsteps. And that's another thing Like you should help people. You should support people because you never know like that support might be the difference between making a new pioneer versus not yeah and she was very great about paying that forward and paving the way behind her so that the road was slightly smoother for everybody that she was supporting the road has definitely gotten smoother in a way that she made the road in injury prevention she did um, she did there was no road she was like clearing out yeah, the yeah, rocks yeah. and the trees and smoothing things out yeah. so she has a long list of honors and awards and publications it would take me a while to name all of them but really quickly 
Another way you know you have made it is when you have written textbooks on your field, as in you made the field, as in the textbooks are yours. <laughs> you wrote the textbooks about injury prevention, and which we'll get into later. Uh, she also won the Calderon Prize in 2010, the according to Wikipedia most prestigious award in public health. I don't know if that's true, but、uh, you know, I'm just going to take Wikipedia's word for it. I will say it was a big deal. So 2010 is the year I started at Hopkins, and and that was a big deal. And in the the few years. Right after that, she had a New York Times Magazine article、yeah. written about her, and yeah, there were a whole bunch of things, and and so it was a a great culmination. And again, like it wasn't like she just stopped working at that point, although she would have been totally justified to do that. She's you know she continued working, and still continues to support doctoral students with scholarships that she's created to focus on how we design. Products in our built environment. Yeah. So now we get to the section where we talk about her work. There's a lot. So one of the things that was something I learned about in my master's program, which I should also say, my mentor at Drexel, Dr. Jennifer Taylor, trained with Sue Baker. This is the whole、Hopkins. family tree again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But so in my、uh, injury prevention course that I took. At、uh, Drexel, I learned about this thing called the Injury Severity Score,、mm-hmm. or ISS, which was created by Sue Baker.、Um, it also has a Wikipedia entry, which、Your、is entry amazing. Had entries, <laughs> yeah. It's like you can like go down into and learn all this amazing stuff. And really, what this did is it took things that. We thought might have been intuitive and or counterintuitive that like maybe we just would have made assumptions on something, and really tried to distill it down to help us assess risk of injury, risk of sort of injury severity, as in the name. So, for example, if you had been in a car crash and you were up walking around fine, you seemingly fine. Um, they wouldn't necessarily take you to the hospital. They wouldn't necessarily be concerned about how you were feeling. But Sue looked at crash records, looked at sort of how people were doing after the crashes, what happened to folks, and she noticed that a lot of people were getting into crashes, seemingly fine, and then having real bad outcomes. You know, a day or two later, or or down the line. I wonder why. <laughs> Because, for example, they might look fine, but if they experienced a front front end collision, the seatbelt might have lacerated, you know, or caused like internal. Damage, right? The force and the body stopping on the seatbelt, and so she basically built out something that said, you know, sort of check out these boxes for various things, and then based on this injury severity, this sort of prioritizes treatment, prioritizes care, etc. And I think many folks credit, and then this has been extended to other topics. It's not yeah, just about motor vehicle crashes, but this has really been credited with. Reductions in injury mortality as people are getting the appropriate treatment more quickly because the severity of their injury is not being dismissed because of sort of how they might appear to be doing. And she then made a second a sort of an updated score later on, the injury severity score two. <laughs> But、Just、it is <laughs> like if you, I want to circle back to the、um, point that you made earlier about like what does it mean to make it, and I think. For Sue Baker, creating this score that is used worldwide now the standard to assess these injuries like that—that's it's huge. And thinking about the impact of her work, like I get excited when I write a paper and maybe I do an interview or two, and maybe it gets cited a few times. Sue Baker has papers that have been cited. Like more times than I could even imagine, because her contributions were so foundational, and she was such a pioneer in helping us to understand 
how to take all the tools we've been using to study infectious disease and apply it to injury. Yeah. And again, we don't use the word pioneer lightly, but she is a pioneer in injury science in that prior to her, this was not a thing. In addition, her work directly led to the creation of the National Center of Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC. She essentially precipitated a whole field with her contributions uh, in this area. And I think a lot of times, like we take, you mentioned this uh, earlier, like we take things for granted. It's like, oh, of course we have a way to measure injuries, but we didn't. We were just like, oh, he looked fine. And that was sort of the offhanded way. But I think that was also the era. And I think this continues to this day where a lot of public health, where a lot of science is about trying to quantify something because without it, it becomes increasingly difficult to have a conversation about. If you don't have some sort of measure, like it becomes, okay, like, what do you mean? How does this compare to that one? Like you're trying to compare things. It's very difficult to compare. And that was sort of one of her, she did many things, one of her biggest contributions to the field. I will say a lot of folks might not know this, but injury is the leading cause of death for people in the US age one to 44. It had been the leading cause of death for a very long time, but it wasn't until the early 90s that we created a center, the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control to really continue building off of the work of Sue Baker, Bill Haddon, some of these other folks who created this field of injury epidemiology. And so that's, I think, another way to know that you have made it when your work is the foundation for the creation of a national center on a topic. Yeah. She also did a bunch of other things. She did airplane crashes. She did a lot of other weird, anything injury related, she sort of like stuck her toes into. Yeah. My favorite thing there, I have a lot of things I love about Sue Baker. Like I'm, you know, fangirling out right sure, now. And, sure, I, sure. and I know Sue and I still fangirl out. She was not just a researcher who said, oh, here's a problem. Let's study this topic. She said, here's a problem. Let me get training on this. Let me try this thing so that I can understand the impact. So, for example, when she was studying airplane safety, air, airline safety travel, she went and got a pilot's license. Just straight up became a pilot. And so one of the best stories she tells is she gets into the plane and she's short, statured woman. And so she reaches down to move the seat forward. But because the plane, you know, when it's not flying, it sits back at an angle. She pulled the handle and the seat flew back. And she's like... <laughs> Was it the ejection? What is, no, what no, happened? no, it didn't. Because it's at an angle, she pulled the, the handle to be able to try to scoot it forward, but the gravity pulled it backwards. And she's like, well, imagine if I had tried to adjust my seat during flight. There was nothing uh-huh. that like sort of emergency wise kept it from sliding back. And so she like worked to design better plane seats so that the default wasn't like, hey, let me <laughs> go flying back into the thing and then I can't reach the controls. And so that's just one example of how it's not just let me study this topic, but let me understand it from the perspective of people who do this to help inform strategies, approaches, her own understanding. Because if we're not engaged with the people that we're trying to make policies about, regulate, sort of collaborate with for solutions, then we're, we're missing part of the conversation, part of the puzzle. Yeah. And that is a spirit that I think we should take into all of our lives, especially as researchers to be like, we need to actually understand something rather than just look at something from 10,000 feet. I mean, we could go on 
Like she did a lot of stuff. Like we could go on. The one just very quick point. Like she was also a pioneer in a sense that during the period of time where she was doing research and doing all these things, it was probably difficult to be a woman in academia. I say probably because I don't have that lived experience, but I know from other accounts, it still can be yeah, sometimes <laughs> that it's not easy to be a woman in STEM or work in academia. So she was also a pioneer in that sense. And uh, from her mentorship, you can tell that she is really trying to make things easier for the women that. Follow after her in her footsteps. Yeah, lots of stuff to talk about. I'm going to move on to this one paragraph that she wrote that I think is really neat. And I'm just going to read it uh, and then we'll discuss it. So, quote, in 1968, I became the first faculty member at the School of Public Health to specialize in accident prevention, soon to be known as injury control, which was the title of my first textbook chapter. At the beginning of my academic career, my research focused on highway safety and alcohol, which was associated with the majority of the 55,000 road deaths annually in those years. Yet when I described my research to a faculty member who asked what I was working on, she said, but is that public health? Uh, her attitude was not unusual at the time, but today no public health professional would be likely to ask that about any injury problem. I think that is a real mark of our success, end quote. I read this paragraph to you because I think one of her biggest impact in the field of public health is that she transformed the concept of an injury from one of happenstance to one of logical causes where there are things that you can do to reduce, minimize, whatever. Because prior to this field of accident prevention or injury control, People got hurt. It was just like, ah, oh, bummer. Well, it was it was blamed on human error, yeah, or thought to be a, a true accident. There's nothing yeah. we could have done to prevent this. But Sue's work really demonstrated that injuries are predictable and preventable. Yeah, injuries are not accidents, and there are things that we can do to change the environment, to change products that we engage with, to uh, have better lighting, to improve behaviors. That can minimize the likelihood that these injuries occur. And that, I mean, to think about having a career where you contributed to an entire change in mindset so that people understand that you can prevent injuries and death by sort of understanding the, the causes of those injuries is monumental. We understood that there are ways to prevent a whole sorts of other things prior to Sue's work. And her ability to take that work and build it out in the injury prevention space, it's just, yeah, again, feel so, so privileged to have had the opportunity to work with Sue. You are now on the family tree of Sue Baker. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Well, I was on the family tree like a few rows down during Drexel, and then I got to go up a, up one ladder. <laughs> up a generation when I got to trade directly with Sue, which was awesome. So to the faculty member that said, but is that public health? Yes. Yes, it is public health. And now we live in a post-Sue Baker world where injury is preventable. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. And I hope you now know a new name in your consciousness, Susan Baker or Sue Baker. And she is the reason why things are a lot safer nowadays. <laughs> 
New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions and comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic or a future episode figure. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph, Instagram and Mastodon at everythingispublichealth. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. I'm also posting more frequently on Mastodon. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.